Hey, again, I thank you for uh, taking the clipboards. If those are still around, uh, thanks for continuing to fill those out. I want to ask you to come forward and to take our offering. Um, <clears throat> this is the week after Easter, and on this week after Easter, I wanted to give you a special message. Uh, we're going to get back into the book of Colossians next week. But I want to talk about something that's been on, on, my, on my heart, and it really dovetails with what we just did with Mike. And uh, I want to talk about uh, why biblical community is the solution, why it is so crucial, why it is so important. And to do that, uh, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 5. This is such an overlooked passage of Scripture, and yet there is gold in this passage of Scripture in terms of thinking about why community is so important, why it really is the solution to a lot of the, the issues that people face. So uh, one of the things I love doing is I love looking for secular academic articles that confirm the truth about the Christian faith. I, I love finding these. There are mountains of research right now by secular organizations about how adhering to the precepts of the Christian faith are good for you, good for you medically, good for you emotionally. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed at the, at the level of research. So, so one of the things that came out recently came out in the Institute of Family Studies. And the question that they asked here was, does religious faith have any benefit for married couples? And the answer was, yes. <laughs> and, and so interesting were the highlights that it got published in a number of places around the country. Here, here's an, here's one, one of the uh, news reports of the study. Want to improve your relationship? Go to church with your spouse. Now, I have heard a lot of skeptics say, ah, the church, you know, doesn't have anything that is going to be helpful for you. It's a waste of time. Don't go. So what this article basically said was there is science-based proof that if you go to church with your spouse, some good things happen. Here are three specific ones, highlights of the studies. Couples experience increased social support from their friends. And one of the cool things about this was, as they did this study, was that couples who were isolated didn't tend to have social support. And when the wife ran into problems, she was going to people who would confirm her side. The husband would go to people who confirmed his side. But nobody was for the couple. So by adhering to regular church attendance, they were getting support as a couple for the benefit of their marriage. Here's, here's another highlight of the study. Couples pray more regularly. If you regularly attend church and are involved in community, you pray more as a couple. Well, praying more was associated with higher reported marital happiness and love. So if you want to increase your love life, pray more. If you want to increase your romantic life, pray more. Now, you can't study the supernatural factor in a science-based study like this was. And yet, one of the things that came through in the reporting of this was the fact that the more a couple prays together and the more they see the answer prayer, the more they sense that, hey, we have an ally in our marriage, and it's 
God himself, the triune God. So one interesting quote, shared religious service attendance and his attendance, in other words, the husband's attendance, was linked to a higher relationship quality. That was an unexpected part of the study, that if the wife just went without the husband, the, the relationship quality did not increase. But if both went together, there was a substantial increase in the quality of the relationship. Now, this is just one, as I said, of many, many studies that are out there, and they're science-based studies on how church attendance impacts wellness. One of the guys I read a lot is a guy, I'll get the arrow out of the way, uh, a guy by the name of Harold Koenig. Uh, Harold Koenig is um, a professor at Duke University Medical School. He is amazing. He's got over 200 peer-reviewed science-based journal articles that essentially state the more people go to church, the better their markers of wellness are. And he has studied this every, every which way. His most recent book is about a thousand-page book called Religion and Health. And all he does is he cites article after article after article saying that if you adhere to the Christian faith, going to church, there are markers of wellness that are, that are, are amazing. This other guy up here is Bill Stewart, a good friend of mine. Uh, we do some research with him. Some of, the, some of it we've done here at Grace Community Church. Um, I love finding these things because they're, they're, they're all over the place now. So here's what I want to do this morning. What I want to talk about is, we, we know that community is beneficial. What I want to talk about is why people are motivated to get into community. And the reason often is pain. People are motivated to get into community because they're in pain. In other words, pain or some need drives people to seek a healing community. You say to somebody, hey, come to our small group. Well, I don't, I don't really need that. Somebody's in pain, you say, come to our small group. You'll encounter unconditional love. We'd love to have you. What, what might they do? I'll come to your small group because I've got, I've, got, I've got a definite need. And what I would like to suggest is that if you want to have influence in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, USA, what I want to suggest is a small group is one of the best ways you can reach people in our culture. People in pain will benefit from being in community. And I want to show you how this works this morning by looking at the example of King David. Let me give you a, a highlight of King David's, David's life before we get into the details. When David was in his late teens, he's anointed king. Uh, but he can't serve as king yet because Saul's still on the throne. And Saul's not going anywhere. And so David serves Saul as his chief musician. Saul has a mental illness. That mental illness is helped by the harp playing that, that David does. Uh, David also is uh, a fantastic athlete and warrior, and David soon becomes Saul's champion. That meant he was his chief warrior. He was the best athlete on the field. And so David is a, an amazing artist. He's an amazing musician. He's an amazing athlete. He's, ama he's an amazing warrior. 
And as you can imagine, King Saul, who is insanely jealous of success, becomes jealous over King David, or over David, who's not, obviously not, not king yet. He's jealous of him. And uh, David is, is, is thinking, okay, uh, Saul has tried to take my life not one time, but two times. And he's a little nervous about that. I mean, Saul one time took a, took a, spe a, a spear and he's up, I'm going I'm to kill you. He moved out of the way, you know, ducked like he's a good athlete. So one day, Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's best friend, says, you got to get out of here. My dad is going to kill you, and this time you're not going to escape. And so David flees. But where do you go? Where do you go in that culture? Now, you might think, uh, I, could, I could come up with a disguise. In our culture, it's hard to do that. Because in our culture, um, we can Google somebody's name. We can click images. And more than likely, their name is going to show, their, their image, their face is going to show up on Google. It's hard to escape in the year 2016. You find somebody on Facebook, find somebody on Instagram, find somebody. I mean, it's easy to find people these days. It was much harder in that day to find somebody, and yet, and yet, as we'll see, everybody knows David. So where do you go? Where do you escape? So what we're going to find is that David, because he's desperate, tries to escape in two places, and they don't work. And God brings him to rock bottom before he finds the solution, which is community. So let's, let's look at, at the first decision that David makes. He makes a, a decision that I will argue is a poor decision, turning toward organized religion. Now, just before we read the text, you know, when we think about people saying, I hate organized religion, why, why do they say that? Normally they say that because they say, I, I went to this church, I went to this denomination, I went to this organization, I wasn't helped. And it seemed like it was more about the organization than it was about me. And so I hate organized religion. I, I hear people say that a lot. So David is fleeing to what really amounts to organized religion. Verse 1, then David fled to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. A little background. Uh, Nob is on the Mount of Olives. Ahimelech the priest had set up the tabernacle on the Mount of Olives. The tabernacle was the official worship tent of Israel. So if you wanted to go and meet with God, you went to the worship tent. There was no, no, no place else to go. That's where, you, that's where you had to go. And this worship tent was highly portable. You could take it from place to place to place, following after the lead of God. David wants direction from God. Where do you go? Go to the tabernacle. That's where he goes. But this place is mired, it is mired in religious institutionalism. Let me define institutionalism for a second. Institutionalism is what happens when organization, to organizations when they lose their way. Now, you can have a lot of different sorts of institutions. A church can be an institution. A denomination can be an institution. A college can be an institution. An old organization can be an institution. There's nothing inherently wrong with an institution. But institutionalism 
is what happens when organizations lose their way and they exist for the perpetuation of the institution itself. You know, a lot of, a lot of churches, you know, start with vision, but they forget what the vision is. And then it becomes about the budget. It becomes about repairing the buildings. It becomes about servicing the debt. It becomes about making sure that influential donors are, are happy. It's not about people anymore. It's not about the vision anymore. It's about things that are institutional. And um, what happens when David comes to the tabernacle is he's not coming to a place where he can meet God. He's coming to a place that has become mired in institutionalism. So here's what happens when with organized religion, it becomes institutionalized. Number one, there's a culture of fear. There's a culture of fear. Verse one, Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? Now that, that's, that's a bit weird. It's a bit weird. So David comes up to the tabernacle and Ahimelech is, is like, David, what? What, what, are you, what are you doing here? What, why, what, why are you here? What's, what's, wrong, what, what's wrong? Why would Himmelech do that? It's because the tabernacle is not about God under Saul's rule. It's about Saul under Saul's rule. The tabernacle is about making sure that Saul's political power is consolidated. And so when Ahimelech sees David, his champion, Saul's champion, Ahimelech's thinking, what, like, like is Saul unhappy with me? Am I about to be killed? Like, are there people in hiding? Are they about to kill all the priests? It is a culture of fear. And when organizations become institutionalized, there is a culture of fear in those organizations. Talk to a lot of people who grew up in legalistic churches and legalistic churches, there, there is a culture of fear. What if I break one of the rules? What happens if I don't adhere exactly to the rules of this organization? Many institutions will develop cultures of fear. Another thing that happens is there's a culture of appearance management. Notice what David does next, verse 2. David says to Ahimelech the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter. Uh, did the king do that? <laughs> no. It's a, it's a lie. Okay, he's, he's, he's telling a lie at this point. And he has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. There are actually uh, two lies here. Uh, not only did the king not commission him, but David is alone. He's not directing any men anywhere. When you move into an institutional form of religion, not only is there fear, but there's also appearance management. I have to manage my appearances so that you will like me. Now, we all do this, right? We all manage our appearances. We all uh, go to our favorite online clothing store, and we Google things on the clothing store that we think will make us look really great. Why are we doing that? We want to look good. Why are we doing that? Because we want people to think we look awesome. All of us are engaged at a certain level in appearance management. The problem with spiritual appearance management 
is that if I do it as an ordinary Christ follower, I am trying to control you so that you have a certain impression of me. Uh, does that lead to a good leadership? Does that lead to good authenticity? No, it doesn't. Appearance management is about control. David is trying to control Ahimelech so that David appears more powerful than he really is. David has no power at this point. David is, is, is fleeing. Uh, number three, problem number three with institutional religion is that sometimes organized religion um, <clears throat> contains people who are well, we could call them dangerous people or unsafe people. Now, notice who is unsafe here. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. Not like he was detained loving God and relating to Him, but detained at the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord should have been. He was detained there, and his name was Doeg the Edomite. We just call him Dog. I like dogs, okay, I'm not saying anything bad about dogs, I'm just, we just call him Doeg or Dog the Edomite, the, the chief of Saul's shepherds. This does not sound good. This does not sound good. Saul fought and defeated the Edomites in chapter four, 14, so Dog was probably a prisoner of war who was useful then as a soldier, who was then useful to Saul as the chief of his shepherds. Now, you want to keep your enemies close. So, Dog was, was uh, rising up the ranks, and essentially, Dog the Edomite is a spy. He's a spy. And uh, he's got this secret job on the side. Now, I've, I've talked to people who've told me that in their communist culture, like Cuba or Russia, a lot of ordinary people were recruited as spies. Um, we talked to a pastor in Cuba who, who knew that his next-door neighbor was spying for the Communist Party that was about five houses down. No big deal. I've talked to people who live in Muslim cultures, and they say ordinary citizens are hired by the government to spy on their neighbors. So I think this is sort of a, a common thing that happens throughout history. Dog the Edomite is a spy within the religious institution within the organization. Now, that happens in churches as well. There are unsafe people in churches. There are, church, there are people who want to find things that you are doing that are wrong, and they want to call you out, not in the biblical way of reproving, exhorting, and so on. They want to call you out because you're not being faithful to the externalized institution, unsafe people. So, David is encountering a lot of conflict. He wants God. He's getting institutional stuff. Now, he, he gets some good things. It wasn't all bad for David. He's hungry. So, he says, is there any food? And the priest says, yes, you can have the bread in the tabernacle. You can have that if you want. Got to meet certain requirements, but you can have that bread. And that was kind of a cool deal because you could not get fast food on the Mount of Olives. If you go to Israel today, you will find that in some of the sites, there is a McDonald's in eyeshot of that site. That was not true back in David's day. And people were often very hungry. He gets some food. He also gets Goliath's sword. But here's another weird thing. Uh, 
where is the sword? The sword is in the very special place in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. Ark of the Covenant is probably in somebody's private home. And so two implements of power are in the tabernacle, the ephod, which is the high priest ephod, and the sword of Goliath. So it's like they're thinking, you know, we don't have the tabernacle here, so let's get implements of power, the ephod and the sword. They're not thinking supernaturally. They're thinking institutionally. So David has gone to institutional religion. It does not work, and he is in in pain over this, and so what does, he, what does he do next? He says, if I, can't, if I can't find God where I'm supposed to find God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run away from God altogether. I'm running away from God altogether. So David rose, and he fled that day from Saul, which means from Saul's minions, like Doeg the Edomite, there on Mount Nob. He flees from Saul, and he goes to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, you can't go any farther than from the king of Israel to the king of Gath. He is fleeing altogether from what we would expect him to flee to. So, there's the tabernacle. Now, that's, that tabernacle is a, is a reconstruction, not on Mount, the Mount of Olives. But, but what happens is he's going on this trek that is 30 miles from the Mount of Olives to Gath. That was a dangerous 30 miles very dangerous. No food, except what he got in the temple, a little bread, very little water. It's going to take him two days if, if he's going pedal to the metal, walking. It's going to take him two days. And there are enemies all around. But he didn't care. I've got to get away. I'm going away from, away, away from God. Um, now, risky uh, to go to Gath for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's killed a lot of Philistines. And so that means there's a lot of widows in Gath. He has killed their husbands. Dangerous to go to a place like that where people could find you out and hate you and want to enact revenge. Also, he's got Goliath's sword. He says in chapter 21, there's no sword like it. You can't go to the Bass Pro catalog and get a sword like Goliath's sword. There was none like it. As soon as he gets there, surely somebody's going to recognize him and find him out. This, this thing is going to backfire, and sure enough, it does backfire because it says the servants of Achish said to the king, is this not David, the king of the land? Didn't they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands? Well, here's what happened. When David was fighting with King Saul, the women would line the streets as they came back from battle, and the women would sing this song, David has slain his thousands, uh, his, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands. Saul hated that, by the way. But it was a catchy tune, a catchy tune. Loaded that thing up on YouTube, loaded that thing up on their iPods, and it went from Israel to Philistia. Philistia. So now the Philist young Philistine women are singing it. David has become the proverbial rock star. Now, I don't know how this song jumped cultures, but you know what happens among you know, young people who are in touch with pop culture. They pick up stuff, and it's amazing how they pick it up. The young people in Philistia picked up this song, and they said, hey, 
there's David. That's the guy of whom they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands. David has been found out. So now he's in big trouble. He was in big trouble with Doeg the Edomite on the Mount of Olives. Now he's in big trouble as he runs the opposite direction. He's about ready to be detained and killed. So what does he do? He pretends to be insane. He pretends to be absolutely insane. Now, what was interesting is that in Philistia, there was a, a, a well, archaeologists suggest there were a lot of insane people in Philistia, a lot of people with mental illness in Philistia. And so David is doing something in Philistia that would have caused people to go, here's another person who's mentally ill. <laughs> it's not David. This is, this is some, some crazy person. And so they're going to they're get rid of him. Now, to understand David's mental state, we've got to compare verse 13 of 1 Samuel 21 with Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. As soon as the Philistine uh, authorities seized David, he, uh, he um, regrets his decision to come here. And, uh, and here's what he says, Psalm, Psalm 56, 1 through 3. A prayer of David when the Philistines, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Have mercy on me, O God, for men are attacking me. All day long, hostile enemies are tormenting me. Those who anticipate my defeat attack me all day long. Indeed, many are fighting against me, O exalted one. But when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. That response seems very sane. On the outside, he may be faking mental illness. On the inside, he is radically entrusting himself toward God. You know, I think what this tells us is that a lot of people, when they want to, when they get into trouble and they just want to survive, they run to bad places. He ran to a bad place. It's a place where he should not have run to. And now, you know, he's depending upon God to get him out of this situation. So I want you to notice what happens next. He, free, he flees from Gath to Adullam and these two psalms are psalms that give his state of mind as he's running. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. David is brokenhearted over his running away from, from God. He went to the wrong place. He's brokenhearted over his sin, brokenhearted over, over the, the solution that he came to. And then it says in Psalm 56, verse 8, you keep track of all my wanderings. Where did he wander to? 30 miles into Philistine territory. You keep track of all my wanderings. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You record each one in your book. That psalm tells us God has a bottle and a book, metaphorically speaking. He's got a bottle and a book. He's got a bottle of your tears. And I don't know how big your bottle is. Could be a, a small little bottle. Could be, could be a, like a big super tanker's worth of tears. We all have different amounts of pain, different amounts of tears. God knows down to the exact measurement how many tears that you have cried, the extent of your pain, exactly. And he's recorded each one in the book. 
grammatically, it's hard to tell in that is if, if God knows all of our wanderings, like where we've been, like, like a GPS map. You know, I see you've been here and here and, and here. Or if he, he's talking about the tears being recorded in the book, or both. But the idea is that in our wandering, God is aware of our pain. Now, notice what's not in those, uh, in those Psalms. They're not, not God saying, David, shame on you for wandering away from me. You bad person, you bad king. I'm not even make you king now. doesn't do that. God is aware of his pain even as he's in, in the course of, of, his, of his wanderings. Now, so far, we've seen, we've seen two logical places to run. You can run toward religion. I'm not talking about good religion, but empty religion. Or you can run away from God altogether. Now, David comes to his solution. However, uh, notice that David has hit rock bottom now. Where do you go now? Can't go to the tabernacle and find God. Can't go into Gath and find help there. Where do, where do I go now? David now has to flee to a cave. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was, in bitter, was bitter in soul gathered to him, and became, he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. The answer for people in pain is this. You've got to get into authentic community. God provides authentic community for David when David is at his worst place. Now, I want you to think about David's first night in the cave before anybody showed up. We have, in Psalm 142, verse 4, we have a picture of what David is thinking. This, David is praying this in the cave before anybody else shows up. Look, O Lord, to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Do you hear the loneliness there? Do you hear the pain there? David is in this dark cave. The insects are buzzing outside. He hears animals sounds on the inside. He's lying down on a stony bed. Nobody is there. And David, David is lamenting poetically. No one cares for my soul. Nobody knows me. Nobody cares for me. I am, I'm all alone. And what I want to suggest is that sometimes God's severe mercy of rock bottom is good. Doesn't feel good. But when you go to rock bottom, is that a sign of his love, a sign of his rejection? No, it, it's a sign of his love. Sometimes rock bottom is the best place you can be because it takes you into a fresh place in your relationship with God. And so now he's, uh, now he's ready. Um, he had loneliness before, and now, <clears throat> now he's, he's ready for re he's ready for for something good. When his uh, brothers and all of his father's house heard of it, they went down there with him and everyone, th think about the three, the three things, distress, in distress, in debt, and bitter. <laughs> like everybody in pain is coming to him in the cave of Adullam. 
I mean, the people who were in distress were in distress because they were persecuted by Saul. The people who were in debt were in debt because Saul had levied the kind of taxes that he was levying. The people who were bitter in soul were people who had seen their families destroyed, their livelihoods destroyed. This is a fellowship of people in pain who are um, seeking help from the God of the universe, and they, they now find it in David. Um, <clears throat> this is a perfect description, I think, of what the body of Christ ought to be, because everybody in here today looks pretty good, looks like we're, we're pretty well put together. Everybody in this room is a cave of a dullum kind of a person. Inside, there is something that has caused you, at some point, to hit bottom. Maybe you're at hit bottom right now. And when you're at rock bottom and you say, nobody cares for my soul, the answer is community. Authentic community, biblical community. And so one of the things we see in here is that there are certain things that are tr always true of exiles, because David's in exile right now. The people who join him are in exile right now. Number one, exiles are defined by their weaknesses. You think, really? I mean, come on. I want to be defined by my strength. I want to be defined by the resume that I put up there on LinkedIn so people will call me with new jobs. That's how I want to be defined. People who are exiles are defined by their weaknesses, and this is very, very biblical. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want kingdom power? You've got to acknowledge your, your spiritual poverty apart from him. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You, know, you want spiritual power? Well, Paul had power in the midst of his weakness that was the thorn in the flesh. God says, I dwell with the lowly. Goes on to say in that verse, and with the crushed. So exiles are defined by their weaknesses. Their weaknesses are the context in which strength can come. More characteristics of, of, of exiles. Exiles experience deep community, community on steroids. I want you to think about something. Think about Paul and Silas in the innermost jail in Philippi. And they, their backs are bleaten, beaten to a bloody pulp. They're, they're in immense pain. They're singing songs of praise to God. And all of a sudden, this earthquake shakes the jail. The stones fall down, and they're able to escape if they want to. They say, no, 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 all, everybody's here, and they lead the prison guard to Christ. Now, do you think Paul and Silas ever forgot that experience? No. By suffering together, and then seeing the supernatural power of God. They were bonded together emotionally for a lifetime. There was a deep community that came in the context of their pain. Think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, one of my favorite, favorite books, I've, I've now read it four times, I love that trilogy. Why were the nine members of the Fellowship of the Rings so closely bonded together? They had a mission, and they had to endure hardship and pain. It was community on steroids. And what I would say is that exiles often encounter this sense of community on steroids. Our lives were in the balance, and we depended upon each other and depended upon God, and God came through, and I'll never forget that. That's how you feel when you're in exile 
and you're part of an, of an exilic sort of a, of a community, community on steroids. Third truth about, about exiles. Um, exiles are led more by authenticity than they are by authority. Can you imagine David in that, in that cave saying, okay, guys, glad you came. Line up. I'm the authority here. I've been anointed king. You guys are going to do it like I tell you how to do it. I want no bitterness from you. Don't talk to me about your debt. Don't talk to me about your distress. I'm the one in charge. He didn't do that, did he? There was an authority on the basis of authenticity. And exiles often, often feel that way. You know, they don't have to take charge over somebody else. There is an author- a spiritual authority that is based upon authenticity. Think about Corey Ten Boom in a Nazi concentration camp in prison. Uh, she comes out and travels the world. And here is this woman with, who's 86 years old. She's carrying these two big suitcases. She wears her hair not in the way people were wearing their hair back in the 1970s. She doesn't look like she has this spiritual authority. And then you sit and listen to her talk, and you realize, here's a person who has seen the worst that life has to offer, and God was faithful, and she has authority now when she speaks. That's how exiles feel. You know, there's an an authority that that flows out of authenticity, um, out out of pain. Here's a fourth thing that's true about but exiles. You start by making some small wins. Verse 3, David went down to Mizpah in Moab where he asked the king, would you let my mom and dad live here under your royal protection until I know what God is going to do for me? Now, why did he go there? Well, um, you know, where, where was, remember Ruth, where Ruth came from? You know, Ruth was from Moab. Ruth has roots in Moab. So David is saying to the king, can, can my mom and dad stay here? Because I don't know how things are going to happen here. It could, it could, be, could be war. It could be very difficult. He's thinking about the, tw- the Ten Commandments, thinking about the commandment, love your father and mother. David is starting off by making some very small wins. I love that about discipleship. Many times in discipleship, people grow spiritually by making very small wins. It's a good thing to begin that way. Exiles often do begin that way. Here's the fifth, thing, fifth truth about exiles. God gives exiles supernatural strength. Verse 6, the prophet Gad said to David, and i got to stop here just for a second. The prophet Gad said to David, isn't it amazing? David wanted input at the tabernacle, didn't get it. David thought, I'll do it on my own in Gath. That didn't happen. So now, one of the people God brings into his sphere of influence is a prophet. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And so David has a prophet, and the prophet now is going to give him direction from God as he tries to figure out what he's going to do next. What a gift God gave him. Sometimes we don't get direction from God until we get into the cave. And in the cave, where there's no place else to turn, God gives us the direction that we're so desperately seeking and longing for. God gives him supernatural strength. Now, 
You know, one of the things that we have to ask as we close is, do you have a cave of Adullam? Is, is there a cave of Adullam in your life right now? And it, it could be, look, my marriage is really not doing well. My career is really not doing well. Um, I, I've just committed a really serious offense against God. What is your cave of Adullam? Now, you may not be in one right now, but you can remember when you were in one. Maybe you're in the process of making a decision that's like not a good decision. You're, you're running to Gath. You're running into the enemy territory. And you're about to hit that cave of Adullam. What is your cave of Adullam? Could be a physical thing. Could be a mental thing. Could be a recent experience that was just so black and dark that you, you, you know you're in the cave. If you, if you can name your cave of Adullam, it's important just to say, God, here's my cave, here's my rock bottom, and what I need from you is I need community, and I need direction within that, within that community. Um, the answer to your cave is community. It's community. And it's you committing to community in such a way that you, you know you're receiving that healing and that direction that can only come from God. So uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion. And, um, and, and really, our heart is a Grace Community Church would be a community of healing, a healing community. That's our, that's our heart. It's one of the reasons why we're, we're just you know, so serious these days about really making small groups work well at Grace. We want grace to be a healing community. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you, and, and then we'll, we'll transition to communion. Father God, I want to thank you for everybody here. And Lord, I suspect that there are some who are in the cave right now, today. Father, I pray that you would lead them into a community here at Grace that would be a healing community. Father, whether it's a small group or a Stephen minister or celebrate recovery or whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would bring people who are in, in that cave of Adullam into community and that they would fall in love with you in that place. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your severe mercies. Even at the darkest place, Lord, you lead us out into fresh places and new places. May you do that, Lord, for all who are struggling this morning. And Father God, as we take communion, I want to thank you for the truth that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you're there in our midst. Lord, we welcome your presence as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Paul, uh, I mean Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he 